Genesis chapter 28. So Genesis 28 opens hard on the heels of the events that happen in Genesis 27. And Genesis 28 contains one of the best known accounts within Christianity, that which is commonly called Jacob's Ladder. But that name isn't accurate. That name is no more accurate than the sunset that I witnessed last night being called David's sunset. Because I did nothing to make that sunset. I didn't enhance it. My presence as I stood there added nothing to it. I didn't create it. I didn't speak it into an existence. In all actuality, I didn't even desire it. And that sunset was no more mine than this ladder was Jacob's. And yet, this is how it has come to be known. And like I said, our chapter follows hard on the heels of verses 46 and 40, uh, of chapter 27, where we read, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And although she used as an excuse to send Jacob away and to preserve his life from the revenge of his brother, this was still truth. Because the wives of Esau, well, they were a dumpster fire. Chapter 26 ends there with this little gem. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And that was the catalyst for the sending away of Jacob by Isaac. And once Isaac is made aware of his sin, of his willful disobedience to the word of God for so long, he understands that it's time to send the chosen son to fulfill the will of the Lord. And so he calls his second-born son in. Picture in your head, if you will. Think in your mind how awkward this situation could have been if it had not been for the intervention in, of the Lord in Isaac's life. Because there was no, how dare you deceive me. There was no condemning of his actions at all. The only thing that Isaac saw was the will of God in his life and that the reality of the blessings of the Lord that had been passed onto him, the second son from his father, was being passed on to his second son, the chosen son of God. Which brings us to verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Just to be Clear. The blessing that is being spoken of here is not an additional blessing to the one in the last chapter. It's not an add-on to that blessing, the one that Jacob had been given earlier. It's just an illumination of that blessing. And then Isaac said to Jacob, Arise, go to Padamaran, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take a wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And there is the command, Go. Just as Abram had been commanded to go in Genesis chapter 12. And those are the instructions. This wasn't a request made by his dad. It wasn't a suggestion. And in fact, it, rightfully speaking, it was the terms of the covenant blessing that had been given by his father. That his father had been given by Abraham. And that Abraham had been given by God. And all this is evidenced in the manner in which Isaac speaks 
of the God that is the one who has already blessed and chosen Jacob. Verses 3 and 4. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And this is the same blessing that was spoken to Abraham back in chapter 17 when God appeared to the then Abram and commanded him, Walk before me and be blameless. And we are told there that when God appeared to him there, it was God. But God said of himself there, I am El Shaddai, which is translated into the English rightly as God Almighty. And verse 3 from our chapter today is the second of three times in the book of Genesis that that name will be used. And it's used here to connect the blessing that Isaac is passing to Jacob with the blessing and the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. Which then brings us to verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaram, to Laban, the son of Bethel, the Aramean the brother of, of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. But before we get to that infamous ladder, I, I want to back up a moment and reconsider that command that was being given to Abraham so long ago. Because if we're going to understand the dream that Jacob is given in our verses today, we must first understand the command and blessing that God has given to Jacob which is the same command and blessing that he gave to Abraham, which is the same command and blessing that he's given to each of us if we are of him. When God appeared to Abram, as told to us in chapter 17, he said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And as, as amazing as that is, that God would appear to a man at all. When we hear that statement, when we read that verse that, all, that God Almighty made to Abraham, we're brought up short. We're brought up short by what he said. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And when we read that, when we hear that, we automatically think, ah, this is a two-step plan. This is a two-step plan that God has laid out in order that we keep the covenant that we are making with him. We do this. He reveals himself to us, and that's our salvation. And then, and then us walking before him and being blameless, that's us doing good. That's us keeping his laws, us striving in order that we can keep the covenant that we're making with him. And we think this is how we remain in our salvation. But as we saw in the life of Abram, and as we saw in the life of Isaac, and as we will see in the life of Jacob, if this were in fact the case, if this is really what God was saying, you do this, and then I will bless you. You keep the covenant that you are making with me. If that were the case, then these men would be in the pit of hell with every other human that is outside the covenant of God. We all need to recognize that on the day of our salvation, God stood before us and said, I am El Shaddai. Walk 
before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And the walking before him and being blameless are not the terms of the covenant. They are not the things that we are commanded to do to remain in it. They are the reason that we are in the covenant. The covenant that he has made with us. It's his covenant. It's his blessing. And it's in him that we are able to walk before him. And it is him that we are blameless. Not will be. We are blameless. He's not laying conditions of employment upon you. He's not giving you marching orders. He's not saying, you do this and then I will do that. He is telling us that if he has revealed himself to you as El Shaddai, he has given you the ability, the privilege to walk before him. And the only way that you can do that is because he has made you blameless. We did not do this. We, in our law-keeping, do not do this. We never do this. And we are never meant to become puffed up in pride over our status with the Lord in our law-keeping. It's all of him, for him, and even through him. And the reality of this is going to be fleshed out for us today in our chapter. Because as much as Isaac is sending Jacob away, Jacob truly is, in all reality, he's fleeing from his brother's revenge. He knew that Esau was comforted after the treachery of his blessing. But it wasn't time that comforted him, nor was it forgiveness that comforted him. It was the sweet thought of the revenge that he was going to take on Jacob and the willful murder of that man once dear old dad was dead. And because of this, Jacob is very willing to obey his father and flee. And he's fleeing from everything that he knows. He's going to a people and he's going to a land that he has never seen. And then in verses 6 through 9, God takes our attention off of that chosen son and directs it on the not chosen son, Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badam Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and gone, his mother and his father, and gone to Badam Haran. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son, the sister of Nobeath. So whatever else Esau was, he couldn't have been the sharpest tool in the tool shed. He had been married for a long time, and he should have known that his wives didn't please his mother and his father, that there was contention between them. Perhaps he knew that his wives and his mom didn't get along. 
But he must have thought, as long as dad liked him, well, that's all that really matters. But now, after hearing the command not to marry these local women to Jacob, the chosen son, the light bulb finally comes on, at least dimly. And he does what all unregenerate people do within the church. He tries to manufacture holiness. He hears the command, and in his flesh he attempts to obey the commands. And he fails miserably in doing so. And there are those within the church that believe that they are saved. They think that the God that they worship is the God of the Bible. They, they may feel something at some point when they walk that aisle or raise that hand. And, and maybe they can see some value in the moral obligations of Christianity. Maybe they even like the community that happens within the church. But they are not, in fact, regenerate. And these people are the ones that when they hear an imperative of the Lord, like walk before me and, believe, and be blameless, instead of realizing, I can't do this, that I must rely on the grace of God, the Spirit of God, they set out to try to manufacture holiness. And this is why people who are unregenerate and are members of a local body, why they so very often can get so frustrated in their walk. Because they'll hear a preacher give a sermon that tells them the commands of God, and then they're going to go in their own flesh and try to fulfill them. They hear a sermon coming out of Leviticus on holiness, where we're commanded to be holy, for I am holy. So they set out to try to fulfill that command. And they do so in order to obtain greater blessings. They will try in their flesh to not do the bad things of the world, that the world does. And when they are outwardly, outwardly able to accomplish some of them, then they look down on their noses at those that do them, and they think less of them as they elevate themselves. And they know when they do this, God is impressed with me. He's really, he's really happy with my efforts. Saints, God is not impressed with you. And Esau, in all of his fleshly efforts, gains nothing with God. Saints, know this. God isn't impressed with you. He's not impressed with your efforts. He loves you. He has given you the ability to walk before him, and he has made you blameless. And he does desire what is best for you, and your obedience is what is best for you. But you do not gain favor with God through it. And you don't obey, truly obey in your heart by your own determination and will. You can only obey from your heart by his grace and his will. And it's when your heart is given over to him, for him, and nothing else, it is then that our obedience, our efforts, truly have any value. Because then, you don't clean yourself up. What ends up happening is you get a greater understanding, a greater vision of the reality of the God, the one that has caused us to be able to walk before him and be blameless. What you obtain from obedience is not more of him. It's less of you. 
Your obedience, your holiness is not gaining more of Christ because he was given to you completely, fully on the day that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And you walking before him, you being holy and blameless is only possible because you are in him and he is in you. And it's in the obedience of walking before him the personal holiness that you are to walk in, that that author of Hebrews was talking about when he said to rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, Hebrews 12, 3. By the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and by the empowering of his blood, we are given a race. And it's only in him that we can run. And us running this race is like all running. If if you guys have ever run in any at all. What you gain by running is endurance. You don't gain anything else by that. And when we run our race with our Lord, we don't gain more of him. We just like when we run here in this realm. When we run in this realm, do you know what you lose when you run in this realm? Pounds. You, 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 you lose flesh. And it's the same thing when we run our race with the Lord. We lose more and more of this old man, and we're able to see more clearly the El Shaddai that has given us this race to run and who has made us blameless before him. But before you think that just because you can't gain more of God by running your race, by obeying his commands, this means that slacking off, that's a better thing to do than a much easier thing to do than actually obeying. And just to prove this point to you, I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Kings, and then Chronicles. Second Chronicles 33. This is the account of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, and a good king of Judah. And the account of the life of Manasseh begins with, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh disposed before the sons of Israel. And you're thinking, wait, I thought you just said that he was a good king, David. The Bible has just said that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It does. And he was. Hang on. This chapter then goes on and tells of the wickedness that this man did in leading Judah into willful sin. In fact, we're given in verse 10, This, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Which then brings about verse 11. Therefore, Yahweh brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with broadened chains, and took him to Babylon. We still have stone carvings from the Assyrians depicting what verse 11 looks like. In, in those carvings, it shows an Assyrian with a slave, with a, one of their captors on his knees before them, shoving a spear into one of their eyes, and at the same time, taking a hook, hooking it through their nose, through their top lip, and then putting it on a chain. 
That's how Manasseh is taken to Babylon. But look at verses 12 through 17. And when he was in distress, he entreated Yahweh, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplications, returned him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. And afterwards he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the opal with it and made it very high. Then he put military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. And he set up the altar of Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he said for Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to Yahweh their God. And we can wrongly think that verse 13 of this chapter is telling of the conversion of Manasseh. That he was unregenerate before being caught like a fish on a hook. And then, when he's in real trouble, he finally sees the light. He comes to God, obeys, which is the proof that he was regenerate. But that's not what the text says. The text says that the bringing of the Assyrians, that this was the discipline of the Lord, the hard, harsh discipline of the Lord, a father to a son, He had given this man his commands, and this man chose to disobey. God spoke again the command to obey in verse 10, and this willful, self-important, sinful saint would not submit and obey. Not yet. But it was the same God that was the God of his father Hezekiah, the same God who had given him the word through Moses concerning the worship of any other gods. The same God is the one that disciplines him. And saints, we need to realize that this man Manasseh, he walked before God and was blameless. Every moment of his life, Because God was his God. But it took being publicly stripped naked, having an eye gouged out, and then having a hook run through his nose and through his mouth to get him to see that the wages of sin is death and that disobedience to the word of God is costly. Just as Isaac found out, and just as Jacob will find out soon, Saints, do yourself a favor. Submit. You're not going to win this. Seriously. You're just going to end up with scars. And now in our text from today, the Lord moves the focus from the goats back to the sheep. From the religious lost to the sinning saint, back to his chosen son, Jacob. Verses 10 through 15. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because his son had said, 
And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am making with you, I am with you, I'm sorry, and will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Every miraculous experience that you will ever have with the Lord happens just like this one. It's the supernatural that happens in the natural. Verse 10 and 11, they set the stage under the natural. Jacob went as commanded, and in his going, the sun rose and the sun set. It's just like it does every other day. And Jacob got tired just as everyone else does when they are traveling, no matter how they are traveling. And we're never even told how Jacob is traveling. Is he on camelback? Is he on horseback? Is he walking? We're never told. But we are told that as the sun was going down, he stops and he makes his camp. And he's tired enough that a rock makes a suitable pillow for him. And this is all the natural. And then we're given verse 12, which uses the natural supernaturally. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, dreams are strange. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I mean, sometimes you wake up and you're like, where did that come from? Experts tell us that 98% of people dream every night. Up to two hours. You dream up to two hours every night. They say that we have up to four to six dreams on average every night, even if you don't remember them. That means that an average person living an average lifespan will live six years of their lives dreaming. And experts will also tell us that most of our dreams are our minds trying to make sense of this world, trying to bring order to it, trying to bring closure to the events that happen in and around us. And because this is true, can I admonish you? Make praying the last conscious thing that you do every night. Make this a discipline in your life. As you lay your head on your pillow, begin to pray. Ask God, reveal your will to me, Lord. Reveal your direction to me. Correct me, Lord. Show me those where I'm off. You may be shocked at just how much he will answer those prayers and use the natural occurrence of dreaming supernaturally in your life. But most of our dreams, if not all of them, are never like this one. In this one, God was stepping into the natural supernaturally. And this dream has as its center a ladder, a ladder that accomplishes that which man attempted back in the Tower of Babel to do reaching to heaven to ascend to God. That's our, often our mistaken thought, that humans have been seeking a way back to get into the presence of God. 
and stand once again in the heavenlies. We think, isn't that the Tower of Babel? Doesn't that prove this to be true? But the reality is that humans are trying to get to heaven. The heaven that they're trying to attain to is a heaven of our own making, a heaven that is not created by God, not ruled by God, and is not the throne of God. And this truth is what makes the dream of Jacob, the vision given him by God, so special. Because in the dream, we do see that there is a way for man to once again be reunited to his maker. And it's this ladder, the one that the angels are ascending and descending on. It's not something that we create, that we manufacture. It's heavenly. It's godly. And this is why this ladder has been linked with Jesus. This is why saints have determined that this has to be the section of Scripture that Nathaniel was pondering just before meeting Jesus, as told to us in John 1, when Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this, than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, and again, anytime you read in the New Testament, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, that is the same thing as in the Old Testament, Thus saith the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, verses 47 through 51. And that, that man, Nathaniel, was not at that moment regenerate, but he was the joy that was set before Christ. And he must have been pondering this ladder, the meaning of it, and how is it that man can be reconciled with God? He must have been trying to figure out how this can happen. How does sinful man, how is it that we can be reconciled to a holy God and then Christ walked up and proclaimed to him, I am the ladder from God to God. And we're told in Romans 5 of this truth. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand how important that is? You have peace with God. You're no longer his enemy. Through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into, his, into this grace in which we stand, not we're going to stand, we stand in it, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And do you hear in these verses that we're once again being told, walk before God and be blameless? We have been justified. We have peace. And because of this, we boast, but not in our law-keeping, not in our actions. It's all boasting in Christ. And this is why Paul can go on and proclaim about us. Not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions bring about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, we don't boast because we have done anything. We boast because God has proven to us through our afflictions the reality of who we are. 
in him. Think, think of it this way. Use this picture in your head. If you were a superhero, you would be Superman, not Iron Man. Because Iron Man can only be a superhero when he puts on that suit. But Superman, Superman is Superman all the time. In fact, he takes off the covering of this world to reveal his true identity. And this is what God is doing in and through our afflictions. And we know that we are of him because for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man, someone might dare even to die for. But God, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. And this is why that ladder gets so much attention in this dream. You would think, though, that it would be the God that is standing above the ladder and declares, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. That you would think that it would be he that would garner the most attention in this account. And if you think this way, you're right. Because it is the God that is standing above the ladder. That is the central figure of all eternity. And it is the ladder that he is standing above, that is the central figure for all eternity as well. Because the ladder that reconciles the elect of God to God, God reconciling us to himself by himself, in himself, and even for himself. And it's this God who reveals himself to us those that have been regenerated by his spirit, who opens the eyes of our heart to understand the wickedness that we are, not that we do, the wickedness that we are, and then who causes us to understand our hopeless state and our desperate need for a savior. It is then this God who then points us to that savior, that ladder who has already obtained our access to him, who has already made us holy and perfect, who has already sanctified, purified us. And we run. We run to the safety of that ladder. But saints, never mistakenly think that you climb that ladder. That your time here on earth is you climbing that ladder, rung by run. You just hanging on to Jesus as you go through trials and tribulations on earth. You hooking a leg and an arm around that ladder. You hanging on with every might that you can as the storms of adversity pound against you. You striving with all that is within you to take that next step up. And then feeling so accomplished when you look down at how high you've come in your walk with the Lord until you finally get at the end of your days, when you will finally be in heaven. Because if that is the ladder that you are on, 
you will never be satisfied with the heaven that God is at. Because Jesus is the ladder between man and God. But he's not a ladder that we climb. Listen to another one of those but God verses as told to us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He has made us alive. He has raised us up. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You didn't save yourself. You do not decide to follow Jesus. He saved you. And you are already in the heavenly places. You were not at this moment climbing Jesus, ascending to the ascending the Son to get to the Father. You are already seated in the heavenly places, in the ladder that is Christ Jesus. And this is why the victorious cry of Jesus on the cross was, It is finished. He didn't cry, It's accomplished. He didn't cry, The ladder's now available. The way has been made. The ladder has been constructed. A means has been made for you. Start climbing. He said, it is finished. And saints, the problem is that we just don't see ourselves in this way. And when we do, and because we don't, we don't to our own detriment. Because when we do, it's then that we will lose our works-based relationship with God and finally understand that all the good works that we do do not garner greater approval from the God that is standing above this ladder. They're just the natural manifestations of the reality that has already been worked out in us as we are in Christ Jesus. And it's when we view this ladder correctly, it's then that we will finally realize that this man, Jacob, did not see himself climbing this ladder. He did not in his dream follow one of the angels to that ladder and start climbing up until he finally reaches the top and achieves the goal of getting to God. He watches the angels ascend and descend. He didn't do anything. He didn't have to do anything to see God, to be in his presence. It was all done for him. Which brings us to verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And beloved, it is when you shed these fleshly eyes, these eyes of flesh, when you are finally given a greater glimpse of the reality that God is, you will know that you are seeing God more rightly when you are afraid. And that fear 
that amazing grace will cause you to worship, which is what we see happening in verses 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured out on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then this leads to adoration and praise. Verses 20 through 22. That Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you gave me, I will give you a tenth to you. Wait a minute. That's not right. This guy has just been given a vision from God of God. This, this man's a saint. He's not, he's not a, a sinner. or not a, He's not a, a poser. He's, he's not a goat. He's a saint. And he's just seen that God has made a way to be reconciled with God, that God is the way to reconciliation, that he's already been reconciled to God. And, and now he's trying to play, let's make a deal. What gives? Maybe, maybe this is actually how our life with God is supposed to work. Perhaps maybe this vow that Jacob made is right. Could this be true? I mean, because there's a lot of people that live like this today. We just need to woe up here a minute. We need to remember who we're dealing with here. Yes, Jacob was a chosen son. And yes, he was God's man. But he was not a man seeking after the God that had chosen him. He's a new believer that knows finally in his heart, now he knows that he loves the Lord, now that he has made this affirmation, and yet he does not yet know that he is not the one that has made it possible for him to love the Lord. He thinks that this is an ability that all are given, and this is why he prays this prayer. He thinks that he's just been given the right and the ability to bargain with God. But saints, I want you to notice that God does not make a fuss about this. He, he doesn't, at the end, come back and change. Doesn't reappear to Jacob the next night in a dream and go, hey, bud, you got it wrong. You got some bad theology there. And it, it's not that he doesn't care about right thinking and right theology. He does. But we need to understand that this man does not have the word of God given to him as we do. So God, God is going to use another teaching tool to reveal and explain this man's bad theology to him. He's going to use life, and he's going to use sinful people to do this. But Jacob's heart has been fully opened, open to the reality that God that is the God of Abraham, the fear of his father, and he finally understands and he finally gets it. And like many new believers, he does the next thing that he knows to do. He makes a vow. And I know that this is true because I did this. I distinctly remember making a vow, praying to the Lord, Lord, I have been so duped by the things of this world. I have been following those things that I've been told are true, and I found out that every single one of them are a lie. 
I don't want to get duped again. I have to know that you are real. And if you are real, reveal yourself to me, and I will follow you no matter what it costs. No matter if it costs me everything that I have, I will follow you. It's a prayer and a vow of a young believer. And you know what? He revealed himself to me. And a few years later, as I was toiling on a hillside with a group of young men that were not my sons, but who were in my care, and as I was pondering the loss of everything that I had owned, my job, my 401k, my house, everything gone, everything that this world declares makes this life worth living, I realized at that moment that God in his gracious kindness, that God had kept my vow. I was walking with him, and I had lost everything, and I had gained everything. And he kept my vow. I didn't. He did. Just as he's going to keep this vow of Jacob as well. The difference is that just like with my vow, he corrects the wording of it to reveal the truth in it. Jacob vows, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I, I come again to my father's house in peace, then my Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. But God was the reality of that vow. God was with him, and he did keep him, and he did give him bread to eat and clothes to wear, and he would bring him back to his father's house in peace because God was his God. We are told later in chapter 35 of Jacob coming once again to Bethel when the Lord commands him to come back to this place. Twenty-plus years later, twenty years of toil, of strife, of conniving, being unfulfilled in an occupation, being repeatedly cheated by his employer, which was a blood relative of his, he is finally set free and commanded, go back to Bethel. And in chapter 35, verses 1 through 15, we read, Then God said, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and cleanse yourself and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Did you just hear what Jacob just confessed? What he knew to be true despite all the years of treachery, despite the years of toil, lack of job satisfaction, and perhaps because of these things, he knew that he was God's man, that God had been with him during and all through these times, that he had never left him, never forsaken him. So, jo so Jacob then came to Luz, which is Bethel, which means house of the Lord, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there, and he called that place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. In our chapter today, Jacob renames Luz Bethel, which means house of God, because this is where he had seen that ladder. But now, in chapter 35, 
upon his return to Luz, to the place that he knew as Bethel, the house of God. He builds an altar, and he renames that place God of the house of God. He now understands that walking before God and being blameless was all by and even for God. And soon after this, God will appear to Jacob once more and say to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called his name Israel. Saints, we, we are the true children of Israel. And we are just like Jacob, always struggling in our flesh with God, just as he did. But see, this is where we're wrong in our thinking. We think that Jacob's wrestling with God was him wrestling with an adversary and not with a father. And this was not the case. Listen to the reality of who you are because of that ladder that was revealed to Jacob. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if you have not made Christ your Lord, if you have not bowed the knee, if you have not submitted your will, and you know that he has got his stranglehold on you, submit, confess. You believe already. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And this is us now and for all eternity. It's not us some point in the future. It's not us when you get your act together, when you grow up. This is us now. This is us now walking before God and being blameless. And it all happens because of that ladder that was revealed to Jacob that night so long ago. Saints, look at that ladder. Understand that there's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing you can do. A, a way has been made for you. Understand who you are in Christ. I'm not telling you that obedience is not necessary. I'm not preaching a greasy grace to you, just saying go out and do what you want because you're saved. I'm telling you that if you realize that this is you in Christ now, if you see Christ this way now, you're going to want to obey. You're going to want to to bless the Father that has blessed you. 
and the adventure begins. Let's pray.